This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. Episode 15. Hot off the press, infant fever rule. Welcome back to this hot episode of EM Pulse. We are excited to be talking about the searing white hot topic of infant fever. Okay, Sarah, I'm going to see how many times I can get the word hot or a synonym into this hot episode. <laughs> Will you buy me my tea on our next shift if I can fit it in 10 times? Yeah, I'll try to make sure it's not boiling hot. <laughs> <laughs> it always is from the cafeteria. But before you get into all of the scorching details, let's step back and let's define a few things. So we're going to be talking about neonatal fever. So fever is a temperature of 100.4 Fahrenheit or 38 Celsius or higher. And when we're talking about neonates, those are newborns in the first couple months of life. We're especially concerned about fever in neonates in this population because they're at high risk as their immune system is still immature and they haven't been vaccinated yet. So our biggest concern with fever in these kids is invasive bacterial infections like sepsis or bacteria in the blood or meningitis. You make a very fair point, Sarah. This topic is muy caliente. (laughs) And that's because the evaluation of febrile infant has been hotly debated since the invention of the lumbar puncture needle, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I don't know for sure. (laughs) And it is challenging because a baby's response to an infection, as you mentioned, is so variable. And we already know that both parents and providers stink at differentiating between febrile babies. And we also know, to make things more complicated, the epidemiology of illness has changed dramatically with vaccines and antibiotic prophylaxis at birth. Also, risk acceptance, lab values available, how we hospitalize, who we hospitalize, how we engage patients in decision-making have all changed in the last 20 years. So it's hard to know how to apply older criteria like the Rochester, Boston, or Philadelphia because there's such a different risk acceptance between providers and settings and families. Yeah, and I'll tell you, as a general EM physician, these are some of the patients that really make me the most nervous. So I see these kids come in. I don't see them that often, but when they do come in, it's stressful for everybody. You know you're going to have to talk to these brand new parents about getting blood from their little baby, doing a calf urine, getting an LP, and then sometimes you're you know having to do that LP with the parents nearby. They can hear baby screaming. It's just it's just no fun. Can I just say that I'm very glad that the cases that stress me out don't stress you out and vice versa. <laughs> Fortunately, PCARN is on the case, right? Yeah, and PCARN, to review, is the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network, which is a national collaboration of PZM researchers. And you know, sir, it's hard on families, too. When their baby comes in as hot as a flaming hot Cheeto, you have to realize that these parents are exhausted and emotional as a new parent. And it's hard enough to keep simple things straight, never mind if your brand new baby is burning up. But if you miss something like meningitis or bacteremia, that could be devastating. And, you know, I remember with my second baby, he was about 27 days old when he had a rectal temperature of 100.3. Oh, my God. And I was like, nope, I am not taking him to the ER because I did not even want to think about him getting a lumbar puncture or, like, holding my little guy, breastfeeding my little dude while they're trying to get blood from him. Like, it just sounds terrible. 
You know, this was such an emotional topic, Sarah, that I actually approached several parents before I finally found one who was willing to share her story about her febrile infant. I was rejected so many times that I finally decided it was too boiling of a topic to even talk to a parent while they were in the middle of it. And so I started approaching patients who had a history of fever when they were little because they couldn't even talk about it in real time. Fortunately, Sarah, I was able to find this really sweet and exhausted young mom who shared her perspective with us. Take us back to when he was 17, 18 days old. How did you first know that something was wrong with your little one? I guess the main thing that I had noticed was that he wasn't really eager to eat as he was before. And every time he would pee, it seemed he would yelp. And so then I was like, okay, why is he in pain when he's peeing? And then he ended up having a fever. So um, I took him into the hospital with his fever, and that's when they transferred us here and discovered that he had that infection. To be honest, I was just terrified because, you know, little ones with a fever, things can change quickly into meningitis, and I was just terrified of losing another another baby. At the hospital we were at in our area, it's rural, and so they don't have a pediatric area there. They do have pediatric doctors, but they can't really do um, what UC Davis is able to do for pediatrics. And so um, they were trying to do a clean catch with a bag um, for his urine s- specimen, and then they switched to doing a catheter with that, and they were able to get that. But when they went to do the spinal puncture on him, I had to leave the room because it was just too much for me. I have had two prior kids that they were sickly and I were able I was able to stay but because of the extensiveness of the pain that being punctured in your lumbar doesn't feel good. So I left and um by the time I finally was like, you know, my mother's guilt kind of set in and I was like I have to go back cuz I could hear him all the way down on the other side of the building. And when I went in, they finally decided that they would just wait and let um, UC Davis try because they had to at least attempt a lumbar puncture. It was just really heartbreaking to see him go through that because, you know, you see what's left is like the gauze, the needles, the blood that is from your child. And it's just really painful to go through it. But I had to remind myself it's for his own benefit they're trying to help him and so with every everything that was going on your new newborn mom at least for me and I was exhausted but I don't know there's just chaos pure chaos to me that's all I remember is them trying to do everything for him but they could but um getting him here was the most important thing to them out of everything Sadly, they did try um, due to his veins being so tiny and tricky because, you know, they're they're tiny. Um, They weren't able to get an IV or a blood draw from him. They did get a little blood, but it wasn't sufficient. Um, I don't know what all panels they were able to get off of him, but I just know that once he got here, everything was basically done here. What were you thinking when they told you that they had to transfer him to another hospital? 
to be honest, I had a bunch of curse words running through my head. And I don't know how to explain it other than saying what I was thinking. And that was, I literally was more, you know, concerned about him. Because you take your child in and you're wondering, okay, what's wrong? Is it going to be, you're definitely hoping it's an easy fix. But um, being transferred was definitely kind of like, okay, do I freak out now or do I stay calm? So being transferred made it feel like this was something even bigger than you had thought it was yeah. to start with. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, what can providers do to help a parent through this emotional experience when they have a little infant um, that comes in with a fever? I guess to reassure them that, yes, fevers aren't something that we want to see our kids go through. Because oftentimes there are doctors that downplay it. Like, oh, it's a good thing they have a fever because then they're fighting it off or whatever. But then that just, like, that kind of downplays the parent's worry. Where I feel like you need to recognize the parent's worry, like you had done earlier with that one situation. Just acknowledge that there's possibly something wrong, but we're going to find out or that, you know, scenarios aren't always set in stone. You know, we still have to go through, what was it, that journey or, you know, journey through it, as you were saying, and reassure them that they're with you through it and that they see you, they acknowledge you and your concerns instead of, oh, well, it's a good thing that they have it. You know, there's a difference. Yeah, especially in an 18-day-old. <laughs> <laughs> And these are not small issues for any parent. Being unable to get the LP, unable to get the blood work, having to transfer to an outside hospital, mommy guilt, parent guilt, seeing your kid's blood in a needle that's been in your baby's back. These things are huge. Yeah, I think to do too much or too little is a struggle that we all have, as we mentioned before. And fortunately... PCARN just recently published a new article. It's called A Clinical Prediction Rule to Identify Febrile Infants 60 Days and Younger at Low Risk for Serious Bacterial Infections. This just came out hot off the press off of JAMAPEDS, and I happen to be friends and colleagues with the head author, Dr. Nate Cooperman. Now, you may recognize that name because he's been on this podcast a time or two, and he is a pediatric emergency medicine physician, professor and chair of the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine, as well as a founding chair of the PCARN Steering Committee. First off, I wanted to know from Nate what he thought the major challenges or questions providers have regarding evaluation and treating febrile infants less than 60 days of age. Basically, why did they do this study? This is a topic that has been an enigma for us for decades because uh, the stakes, first of all, are big. We can't miss invasive bacterial infections in this age group. Yet at the same time, over-testing and over-treating have their own set of complications. We know that hospitalizing infants unnecessarily expose them to risks of infection in the hospital, misadventures with procedures, all sorts of things. So it's sort of like the Goldilocks principles. We don't want to do too little. We don't want to do too much. We want to do it just right. <laughs> um, and uh, the other thing that's really important is that each clinician has their own risk tolerance and what are they willing to miss but importantly, we really need to engage the parents as well for them to understand 
what are the trade-offs and what are the risk tolerances that they're willing to take. So I think the big questions in this first two months of life are three. Who needs a lumbar puncture? Who needs empirical antibiotics? And who needs to be admitted to the hospital? And each of those questions is quite dastardly because there's <laughs> has been a lack of data historically, but now with some work done in Europe, work done in the United States, we're getting closer to better evidence. And that better evidence can help translate into more informed decision-making, both for the clinician and for the parent. Yeah, I love that idea of the Goldilocks principle. You want to be able to do enough to get the answers you need, but you don't want to have to do too much. And that is exactly what I'm looking for in these patients. You and me too, babe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how does PCARN approach this topic? PCARN um, is taking a two-pronged approach to this. And we actually started in about 2004 on this topic of fever in the first two months of life. And so a group of three of us, um, my colleagues Prashant Mahajan at University of Michigan and Octavio Ramillo, who's at Nationwide Children's Hospital, we established a partnership to address two things. First of all, we wanted to change the paradigm for the definitive test for invasive bacterial infection. That is, we've been doing cultures of the blood, CSF, and urine for millennia. And it is chock full of problems. We know that cultures take a while to become positive. We know there's a pretty high rate of false positive cultures. But equally, equally dastardly is there is a rate of false negative cultures. So we know that the process of culturing, it's historically what we use, but we thought it could be improved upon with genomic techniques. So we started this adventure in 2004 with the goal of trying to change the gold standard of defining an invasive bacterial infection, moving away from cultures to looking at the host response to infection. So we use a technique called RNA biosignatures, which basically means that the host, that is the baby, when they're fighting a viral infection, their RNA expresses itself in a certain way. And if they're fighting a bacterial infection, then they express their RNA a different way. That was the main goal of this study, and we continue on that path. The second aim, however, is until we have a better definitive test, we also want to figure out what is a better screening test. That is, what tools, what new biomarkers can we use to predict invasive bacterial infection? And the goal, the holy grail of this is to actually eventually bring those two together so that perhaps the genomic techniques can be so quick and so such a rapid turnaround that they become both the screening and the definitive test. But we're a few years away from that. So in the meantime, we've taken the approach to look at the genomic approach to replace the definitive test while looking at these other biomarkers to do prediction ruling. I love that when Nate and Picarn tackle a topic, they're not like, hey, let's do a really big retrospective study. But instead, they're like, oh, wait, hey, let's redefine the gold standard for a diagnosis. I don't think I dream that big, Sarah. <laughs> Clearly, the RNA biosigs at bedside where you take like a drop of blood and drop it on a card and it tells you the exact diagnosis is like Star Trek era medicine. Right? <laughs> but for right now, while we're waiting for Star Trek to be fully realized, or wait, for the RNA biosigs to be fully published, 
They have given us a prediction rule that uses labs we actually have in our hospitals right now. So I did ask Nate to tell me a little bit more about that aspect. We realized that the traditional biomarkers, which is the white count, the neutral count, the band count, we know these are old, weary tests, and the epidemiology of bacterial infection in these, in these uh, infants has changed. What's happened over the last 10 to 20 years is because of uh, screening of maternal cultures for group E strep and then peripartum chemoprophylaxis with antibiotics if the strep's positive. What we've seen is a decline in strep disease, and E. coli is now the most important bacterial pathogen. And that, by the way, is why the urinalysis is the most important screening test because not only does it identify E. coli UTIs, it identifies a lot of E. coli bacteremias because they're frequently associated with a UTI. So what we found is E. coli is the most important pathogen now, group B strep the second, and it's not surprising why the prediction rules have changed because if you look at the white blood cell count response to gram-negative infection, which is E. coli, it's different than the white blood cell count response to group B strep, a a gram-positive infection. We've documented this before with meningococcus and salmonella, where if you're well with with meningococcus and you're well with salmonella bacteremia, guess what? Your white counts were normal-ish, as opposed to if you had strep pneumonia, your white counts are really high. So now with the change in epidemiology, with the shift towards E. coli, it's not surprising to me that the white blood cell count and whatnot is not as good a screen anymore uh, than it was with those previous prediction rules. But fortunately, we have new biomarkers. So that's fascinating to me, and I can see why we need a new prediction rule. So how do we get there? So we did a series of analyses over the course of a few years on 5,000 febrile infants that we've enrolled into these studies so far. It's a big number. So we looked at the sensitivity of the white count. Bottom line, not very sensitive. Uh, So you can't rely on it as a sensitive screen. Having said that, I always still pay attention if the white count is really high or really low. It's not that I ignore it, but overall the white blood cell count is not a, a good test. In fact, of the routine CBC, the absolute neutral count is a much better screening test than the white count. So we published that in pediatrics uh, a couple of years ago. We also looked at the clinician's ability to clinically identify who has serious bacterial infection. And guess what? We do not do a very good job. Uh, there were about, I think it's 24 uh, infants with bacterial meningitis in this cohort of 5,000 that we analyzed. Half of them would be missed by clinical judgment alone. And we published that in pediatrics as well. So that made us swallow hard and think, okay, we really do need to do a better job in our screen. So we decided to sample procalcitonin. It's a a test that has been available for many years. And in Europe, they have been using procalcitonin for a decade, well ahead of us in the United States. So we added that to our blood sample armamentarium in these tests of screening tools for serious bacterial infection. We looked, by the way, at lots of factors uh, to derive and validate this prediction rule. We looked at the clinical appearance as judged by the Yale observation score by clinicians. We looked at the traditional markers, white count, absolute neutral count, etc. We also looked at 
the duration of fever. We did not look at band counts because there are data out there to suggest that there's a lot of variability in the read of band counts. And so a lot of hospitals have uh, done away with it. So having said that, we analyzed 2,000 children. This was the number we had at the time, about 900 to derive a prediction rule and another 900 to validate the prediction rule. By the way, I should make it clear, for the purpose of this analysis, we included UTI, bacteremia, and bacterial meningitis, even though we all know that UTI is a bit of a different animal, not really an invasive disease compared to bacteremia and bacterial meningitis. And what we found is that there were three predictors that were highly accurate in identifying those infants with invasive bacterial infections. A positive urinalysis, an absolute neutral count of 4.1 thousand per millimeter cubed or greater, or a procalcitonin of um, greater than 1.71. And this is done in recursive partitioning, so it's a tree-like algorithm where you consider each of those variables uh, sequentially. And in the derivation sample, that is the sample of children in which we derived the rule, the sensitivity was very high at 98.8%. And really importantly, the specificity was high at 63%. Specificity is important because with a high specificity, what that means is that you can obviate a lot of LPs and antibiotics and hospital admissions, potentially. In the validation set, these rules never work as well in the validation. That's the way the statistics are created to make a conservative uh, rule. But the validation, the sensitivity was still 97.7% and the specificity 60%, so still very high. So that's awesome. But I wonder who they did miss, right? So I think the scary part of this and part of the reason that we do all of this is so we don't miss that rare kiddo with meningitis. Did they miss any kids that we care about? There was three infants in this sample of 1,800, so the combined cohort of derivation and validation that the rule missed. Super interesting who they were. None of them were, by the way, in the first month of life. They were all in the second month of life, interestingly. Two of them had UTIs. We defined them as UTIs because one had growth of 100,000 of Pseudomonas, and the second one that was missed was an infant that had E. coli growing at 55,000 CFUs per ml. So we defined them as UTIs, but there are many who would say that those perhaps are not UTIs, and those are asymptomatic bacteria because the urinalyses were absolutely normal. And some people feel even at this age, there should be markers of inflammation with UTIs. The third infant that was missed was an infant with bacteremia. And I'm just going to tell you the story because it's interesting. It's a patient who had enterobacter bacteremia. The labs were drawn. The child didn't look particularly toxic, but they admitted the child because they were dehydrated but did not start empirical antibiotics. Then at hour 17, that first blood culture is positive for enterobacter. The patient had, was hospitalized at that point. They repeated the blood culture and started antibiotics at that point. That repeat blood culture was negative. They treated the child uh, with antibiotics for a week, and they, uh, they did well, uh, and they received a final diagnosis of transient bacteremia. So those were the three misses. And the one last thing I just want to mention, we realize that these thresholds, these cutoffs of 4.1 and 1.71, they're kind of goofy. Well, why are they goofy? It's because they're derived by the, the statistical algorithm. And this is actually a, a strength of this study because previous prediction rules for serious bacterial illness 
pick these just lovely cutoffs of 5,000 of this and 10,000 of those. But those were not cutoffs that were statistically derived. That's why they're so pretty. And as we showed in these previous articles, those particular thresholds don't work very well for identifying SBI. So by doing this particular multivariate analysis, we identified non-pretty cutoffs. But both we and the journal thought it would be good to say, what happens when we round them off these cutoffs to have more reasonable, memorable cutoffs? And so we have a rule in which we um, round off the ANC to 4,000 and the PCT to 1.7. And second one, when we round off the ANC to 4,000 and the PCT to 0.5. And guess what? They work almost identically well. Same sensitivity. The specificity goes down a little bit because you're lowering the thresholds, but not very much. So many people, including ourselves, might argue, hmm, Maybe we should use the rule with those rounded cutoffs because they're easier to remember and a little bit safer because they have lower thresholds. So I wanted to know, what do we do with this information? How do these numbers apply on my next shift? This is data. These, this is information. It gives you very precise risks of having uh, these serious bacterial infections that the clinician can then apply to their judgment and can also engage parents with shared decision-making to say, hey, at least now we can make an informed decision. So um, the way I interpret it would be as follows, is that if you have none of these predictors, this is a very low-risk patient. I personally will not do the lumbar puncture or give antibiotics with a caveat about the first month, which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. Okay. But I would interpret it that way. But if you have one of these things positive, it certainly puts you at greater risk. But does it mean if you have one positive that you need to do the full court press? Well, if your ANC is above uh, 4,100, but now your procalcitonin is really low, below 0.18, your risk of serious bacterial infection is still very low. So we give a couple of options of evidence in there that clinicians can choose to apply to decision-making. Sarah, I kind of like that this is like the PCARN TBI papers, right? You have a rule that says this is who you do not need to get a head CT scan on. And then they published all those papers that were like, oh, this is your chance if you have vomiting alone, or this is your chance if you have severe mechanism of injury. And then you can take that information and talk to the family about that and decision share. I like that this is what they're moving towards with this rule as well. Yeah, I agree. And okay, I'm not peds trained, but the really little ones are the ones that scare me the most. So are we actually ready to apply this in the first month of life? Let me tell you the good news and the bad news. The good news is that we derived this rule from age zero to 60 days. And this is for bacterial infections, remember, not for viral infections, but it worked great all the way to age zero. Now, are we ready to apply it to age zero or not? And for two reasons. First of all, although we had uh, almost uh, 200 infants with uh, serious bacterial infections, the great majority of those were UTIs. We had 30 infants with bacteremia or bacterial meningitis. Now, as I mentioned, the prediction rules identified all but that one child with the enterobacter bacteremia who did well, but 30 is not a big number. I mean, it's a pretty big number. I mean, we needed to enroll thousands of infants to get to that number. So we need to validate the rule on even bigger numbers, particularly cohorts that have more bacteremia and bacterial meningitis, before I feel confident applying it in the first month of life. The second thing 
I do want to mention is about herpes, about HSV. There were four infants with HSV in this cohort that I mentioned. Three of them were in the first month of life, and all three had um, herpes in the CSF, and one was in the second month of life. The prediction rule, as we suspected, only picked out two of those four because this prediction rule was not meant to identify viral infections, the prediction rule for bacterial infections. So with those two things in mind, and knowing that about 85% or so of herpes disease is in the first three weeks of life, we agree with the step-by-step folks. We would not apply these rules in the first three weeks of life. And then the big area of controversy in my mind is the fourth week of life. Our prediction rule works great. It identifies everybody in the fourth week of life with bacterial infection. But we know uh, in the step-by-step rule, it's a very good rule uh, done by uh, very smart and good colleagues of mine in Spain. But uh, the step-by-step was overall 92% sensitive, I think, for invasive bacterial disease. And there was four kids with bacteremia in that fourth week of life that was missed. So given that, my personal preference would be to say, hmm, first month of life probably should do the full sepsis evaluation with the caveat in that fourth week, knowing that step-by-step is out there and knowing that the PCARN rule got all those patients, that might be a group that you could perhaps obviate the LP, but I would watch very closely for some prolonged period of time, maybe in an OBS unit in the ED or something like that, if you're not going to administer antibiotics. It's, that's the kind of big area of controversy. But in the second month of life, which I think actually in many ways is more important because there are many more infants that are coming to EDs around the nation with fever, in that group, I feel very comfortable applying uh, these uh, novel screening techniques to identify those that don't need lumbar punctures, antibiotics, or admissions to the hospital. That is my great hope for this rule. All right. So, Julia, you are my go-to peds expert. Are you ready to apply this now? How are you going to use this? Are you ready to use this on your next shift? Ah, you're going to put me on the line here. I see. Uh, Well, honestly, I have been using the step-by-step, which Nate mentioned earlier, and the step-by-step is very similar. It is a rule that was derived in Spain, and it looks at fever without a source in infants more than 21 days of age that are well-appearing. So it starts at 21 instead of starting at zero, um, like the PCARN rule. The step-by-step approach suggests patients without leukocyturia, so have a clean urine, a procal that's less than 0.5, a CRP of less than 20 milligrams per liter, or an ANC less than 10,000 are low risk and they do not need a lumbar puncture. I see the PCARN rule as very similar to the step-by-step. So applying PCARN is not too much of a stretch for me. I like that they're similar because it adds more evidence towards using these biomarkers in this current population that we have. I like that it's in the United States and it was derived here. And in fact, it was derived in my emergency department with my patients. I also like that it's PCARN and I really like that PCARN is publishing the actual details so that I can have those informed conversation with families about the risks of doing these procedures and not doing these procedures. I would love to be an early adopter and start going down to 21 days or even think about it in younger patients, although Nate does mention one of my concerns, which is herpes as well. Um, So I'm definitely not ready to apply less than 21 days, and I'm probably not quite yet there less than 28 days either. 
pulse check. The new PCARN study published today in JAMA Peds shares some exciting research in the works that may allow us to use RNA biosignatures in the future as both a screening and diagnostic test for invasive bacterial infection in neonates. In the meantime, PCARN provides us with a new prediction rule. The study looked at infants less than 60 days old and tells us who does not need a full workup. The low-risk infants are those with a normal UA, a procalcitonin less than 0.5, and ANC less than 4,000. We are not ready to apply this yet to infants less than 21 days, and think long and hard about those in the 21 to 28-day-old group. This spicy topic is sure to intrigue the Twitterverse, and luckily we are on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook as at Podcast. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our podcast. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and now Spotify. And please leave us a rating. It helps us reach more people. Sarah, I can't wait. We have another conference coming up at the UC Davis Emergency Medicine Winter Conference in Tahoe at the Ritz-Carlton. It is March 4th through 8th. Find out more in the show notes. We also have some exciting news. In place of our March episode, we'll be podcasting direct from the Western Regional SAEM Annual Meeting in Napa, California, March 21st to 22nd, bringing you all the juicy highlights. So if you're in the Western U.S., come and join us. You can register through the link in our show notes. And follow hashtag WRSAEM19 on social media. Thanks to our department, you keep us warm. And thanks to OM Audio Productions, you keep us cool. Wait, wait, wait. Sarah, I think you owe me a tea now. (laughs) (laughs) All right, that's pretty hot. What are you looking for? (laughs) 